Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Pope Francis Generation. Uh, Paul, welcome back to the show. And today we are joined by Colleen Dull. Welcome, Colleen. Good to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Paul, today we're talking about Father Rupnik and trusting the Pope. Who's Father Rupnik and why this topic? And why Colleen? Yeah, so um, for the past past maybe few months, um, maybe longer than that, uh, but it's been increasing. There's been more and more news about a former Jesuit priest, um, Father Rupnik, who is a pretty famous artist in the church. You've probably seen his artwork, even if you may not be able to, um, to name it. Um, and he's been accused of um, some pretty gross misconduct in the church. And um, there's real questions going on of um, who knew and um, why isn't he being prosecuted as much as he could. Mm -hmm. And in any case, uh, Colleen Dully is with us. She uh, she has the inside. She co-hosts the Inside the Vatican podcast for America, and um, she's contributed um, to articles laying out the details of this story. And our goal today is to talk about the story, but then maybe more importantly, dive into us as Catholics who love the Pope and who love the church. What do we do with this information? Um, and it appearing once again, that the church is mishandling um, and not prioritizing uh, people who've been harmed. So that's what we're talking about today. All righty. Well, let's, let's, Get right into this. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Uh, hello, friends, again, and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching, who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore, and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the Kerygma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. Over to you, Paul. Yes. So we have Colleen Deli with us. She's an associate editor at America Media, where she co-hosts the weekly news podcast, Inside the Vatican. She writes and edits Vatican News and in analysis articles for America Magazine and contributes to Sacred Heart University's Go Rebuild My House Church Reform blog. Colleen, thanks for being with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Um. So I've been listening to Inside the Vatican, I think since the beginning, we were talking before the show, uh, you, you guys started around the, the Synod on Young People. And I know I was listening the year after that, but I'm pretty sure I was listening from the beginning. And um, so kind of the tagline for that for that podcast is um, it's an intergenerational conversation because you co-host with um, a Gerardo O'Connell, who's been... Mm -hmm maybe vatican correspondent for longer than we've been alive uh, for sure he was he started in 1985. yeah that's longer than i've been alive yes me too <laughs> Bye <a bit. laughs> yes so so this podcast is a little less intergenerational <laughs> um but uh i value the perspective that you bring not just the journalism that you bring but your perspective as as a millennial uh in the church Thanks. um so yeah I, as we talked about at the beginning um I want to talk about the story of Father Rupnik and related to it, um, sort of, I guess, is also the um, new new appointment of Archbishop, now um, Cardinal-elect Fernandez, um, to the head of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. And some of these same themes are coming up. So um, 
yeah, it's just kind of, it seems like the same theme of the church, church prioritizing, um, the church not prioritizing those who've, who've been harmed uh, by the church in some way. So um, let's jump into the story of, of Father Rubnik. Um, at the end of June, you contributed to an article in America titled Timeline, uh, what we know about former Jesuit Marco Rubnik's alleged abuse and the questions that remain. And we're going to link to that in the show notes. That's a fantastic article that lays out a very complicated story. Um, in summary, I, yeah, what's the story? What should we know? And what are some of the questions that remain? Sure. Okay. It's, it's a long story. It's a complicated story. I'll do my best to make it listenable for podcast listeners. <laughs> Basically, up until June 15th, Marco Rupnik was a Jesuit priest. He's still a priest. He's no longer a Jesuit. Um, although there are rumors that he might appeal to Jesuit leadership in the coming months. Who knows? Uh, he was well known, as you said in the intro, in the Catholic world as a preacher and as a mosaic artist. So, I mean, his work has a lot of like gold. And we were talking about before the show, people with big eyes. <laughs> um, so you, you've probably seen them before if you can't place them. His works hang in the Vatican, at Lourdes, and even in St. Ignatius's cave at Manresa, where he had his big conversion. Um, on to the allegations against him. So there's two sets of them. The first one is an allegation that Rupnik had absolved a woman with whom he had had sex. So that is a really big crime in the church. It's called absolution of an accomplice. Basically, a priest can't absolve somebody who was an accomplice in their sin. So this incurs an automatic excommunication. This happened around 2016 to 2017. It was reported to the Jesuits in 2018. They investigated it. Then they brought it to then the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which handles these abuse issues, which we'll talk about later in the show. So then Rupnik repents of the sin in May 2020. His excommunication is lifted within a month, which the AP reported was a really unusually fast turnaround time. And the Jesuits keep the restrictions that they had put on him during the investigation in place, and they even double down on some of them after this excommunication is lifted. Um, now, the second set of allegations concerns sexual misconduct with women in this community in Slovenia that he helped found. His role in it is kind of murky. It's called the Loyola Community, and it's in Slovenia in the 1990s. It's a community of women. They're not quite nuns. They're still lay people, as far as I understand. But in June 2021, so after all the excommunication stuff had happened, uh, this Vatican investigator was sent to look into the divisions in the Loyola community because the community, yeah, was not doing so well, whatever, needed to be investigated. And this Vatican investigator learned from these women in the community that Rupnik had sexually and psychologically and spiritually abused some of them, according to the women. So... The Vatican investigator brought that to the Jesuit superior general who started an investigation. They put more restrictions on Rupnik on top of the ones he already had. Um, and despite that, he still preached on the gospel in a YouTube video for this art center that he works at, that he runs in Rome called the Centraletti. Even though he was under restrictions. Even though he was under restrictions. And so that violation of the restrictions then alerts his victims. Some of them decide to come forward in the press because they say, you know, these restrictions are not being kept. <clears throat> and then in October of last year, 2022, the DDF, now the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, 
decides not to process those allegations because they're past the 20-year statute of limitations. Um, and this all comes out in the press around December, like December 1st, 2022. And when that happens, the Jesuits kind of have, uh, there's conflicting statements from Arturo Sosa. Finally, the story starts to get nailed down. It's why we felt it necessary to compile a timeline on this story. Uh, and the Jesuits open a new investigation at the end of 2022. They invite anyone else with information to come forward and 15 more alleged survivors come forward, 14 women and one man. And the Jesuits put even more restrictions on him and they basically tell him, you have a case to face. Like you need to start facing this down, making amends, showing some kind of contrition. And he refuses to cooperate. He won't talk to investigators. He won't move out of Rome, which is one of the restrictions they've placed on him. Um, it's not totally clear what all the all the restrictions were, but it's likely kind of what we saw with McCarrick, like a life of prayer and penance type of thing. Uh, he, anyway, he refuses to cooperate, so they dismiss him from the order. He's probably going to appeal. That's that's it in as much of a nutshell as I can put it in. Yeah. Now, was there something in that timeline, and and I may be misremembering, where the local bishop in Slovenia did did deem these accusations credible? I think you're right about that. I would have to check the timeline again yeah yeah so um and with that many people like uh these are pretty substantial claims yes yeah do we know i don't know if you want to go into what they were but essentially it it all gets wrapped up into like spiritual sexual and psychological abuse yeah under people who are under his authority and in some cases under his spiritual direction yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it, the, the authority part is sort of hazy. Like, it's not exactly clear what role he played in the Slovenian community. But we do know that he was very much in charge of the Centroletti in Rome once he got there, and that there were some people who said their abuse was part of them being members there. Yeah. So some of the, um, in this article, it was, here's the timeline, and then also what questions remain. Mm-hmm. And some of the questions that remain for me are, uh, why didn't it, the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith choose to prosecute? Um, mm-hmm. Because there's precedent for waiving the statute of limitations and mm-hmm. with claims that are this substantiated by so many people and um, allegations that are also this severe. Um, do we know why uh, the dicastery didn't waive the statute of limitations? Uh, what we do know about this is that Pope Francis usually waives that 20-year statute of limitations, which is the statute for uh, reports of abuse by an adult. He usually waives it when it comes to adults coming forward with cases where they were abused as minors, right, which happens a lot. Um, In an interview with the Associated Press in January this year, the Pope said that that doesn't automatically happen for cases of abuse of adults. He doesn't automatically do it like he does with cases for minors. But obviously that's also raised some questions about whether Rupnik was getting some kind of preferential treatment because of his fame, because of his Jesuit connections. You know, he, the Pope's a Jesuit, the guy who was head of the CDF at the time was a Jesuit, and even the investigator who visited Slovenia was a Jesuit. So there's, there's a lot of Jesuit connections here, people who would have lived in community with him, et cetera. Um, And I think that the same question then also applies to why the restrictions that the Jesuits say were put on Rupnik weren't always enforced. Like he was invited. He basically had the biggest honor that that a preacher can get in the Catholic Church, which is being invited to preach at 
the Roman Curia's Lenten uh, retreat. He was invited to do that in 2020 when he was supposedly under these restrictions for this whole excommunication saga. Uh, yeah, so so why was he allowed to do that? Um, and then there was also the thing about the excommunication being lifted early. So there's a lot of questions here about preferential treatment that have not totally, yeah, been resolved. Yeah. Is it, uh, do you know if it's only the Pope who can um, lift the statute of limitations? It's got to be done with his approval. Um, okay. So like it happens pretty automatically, but it's still him signing off on it as far as I understand. Yeah. Um, along with this, um, well, okay, I guess <laughs> I'll just ask the question. Um, Please. There's a lot of these, there's a lot of these things that seem to imply that um, the uh, that the Pope stepped in and uh, or chose not to step in in some way that he was close to the case or close to Rubnek um, and made decisions in favor of him versus um, the prosecution or enforcement of restrictions placed against him. Um, like it's pretty easy to draw that conclusion, like like reading between the lines. Uh, do we know if the Pope um, had a close relationship with Father Rupnik? Do we know if um, he was aware of how severe the accusations were when he like allowed him to preach to the papal household? Um, yeah, like what's the Pope's involvement here? Yeah, I mean, so we only know for sure what the Pope has said and then what we've been able to place together from the documentation and from other people's testimonies, which is not a lot. Like there's actually not a ton on the record here concerning Pope Francis's knowledge or involvement. We do know that the Pope would have known about the case at least around 2020 with the excommunication stuff. And then we know he knew about the other allegations out of Slovenia around 2021 20, to 22, because he told AP that he had been involved in handling Rupnik's case only to intervene when those allegations from the 90s, that second set, were going to be heard by a Vatican tribunal. And he said he intervened at that point to make sure that they were heard by the same tribunal that heard the first set of allegations. He said that he was not involved in handling the case at all outside of that. So that's that's what the Pope says. You know, I, you can believe him, you can take it with a grain of salt, whatever. Um, but that's pretty much all we know about that. Um, along with this, uh, the, the Vatican media is still publishing articles with his artwork. Yeah. And there yeah. was something just a couple of weeks ago where either they were asked about that or they made a statement and the head of the Vatican media department, I mean, the way I read it was, we don't really care. We're just going to do what we want with his artwork. <laughs> um, so maybe you can, you can, uh, uh, share what some of the details of what happened there but also like why continue to share this artwork when um well i mean that's kind of that's kind of a bigger question is is it is it appropriate to continue to for the church to share music or artwork or works from people who have abused their power in such um, severe and gross ways. Um, like, I tend to err on the side of, well, if there's someone who's been 
uh, if there's someone who's a survivor of abuse and they hear this music or see this artwork, is this a barrier to them encountering the Lord? And if it is, why have it? Why do it? Um, I, don't know, I just kind of threw a lot at you. There's, there's several <laughs> questions in one. I'll, I'll start with, you know, kind of what we know. Um, so, and I don't have the statement in front of me right now, but uh yeah, the Vatican got a lot of questions. The communications dicastery in particular got a lot of questions about why they were still using Rupnik's art. I believe they even deleted a tweet that used one of his pieces uh, after a lot of pushback. But <clears throat> the statement that they put out basically said that they had like taken it to a committee of people who discussed it and they decided they're going to keep using it anyway. Um, people who are amenable to that point of view say that you know you can separate the art from the person and so whatever yeah the the work of art is separate from the sins this person committed I, you sometimes see people making the same argument about like the large community after the jean bonnet revelations although i don't think anyone's ever gonna argue for the dismantling of large right because it involves a lot of other good people um yeah the work of art thing is different right it's not a it's not a living community um my view on this is, you know, if you get something out of praying with these images, that's cool. Like you can keep them up, but keeping them up in a place like the Vatican, a place like Lourdes, you know, where this is a, a place that's for the whole church. This isn't like a private prayer place. That I think is where we should really be uh, reevaluating especially the message that this sends to survivors. And I mean, I think it it comes off to me pretty clearly that, that they should be removing those works of art, trying to, you know, commission other artists, right? There's like, there is opportunity here for this to, to be made into something better. Um, yeah, I'm not, not with the people who are like, oh, this is bad art, so take it down. I don't think it's bad art, but if you're gonna communicate that you really care for survivors, then yeah, I think that this is this is the way that that people want to be heard, and it, you could you could do it pretty easily. I think that's a key line you just said. If you're going to communicate that you care for survivors, um, uh, yeah, I want to come back to that uh, as as a theme and kind of hit mm -hmm. the second story. Um, sure, uh, which is that. Uh, Archbishop and soon to be Cardinal um, Victor Fernandez um, mm -hmm. was just named a couple of weeks ago by Pope Francis as the uh, uh, the new head for the dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith. The DDF mm -hmm. used to be the CDF used to be the Holy Office. Um, now this office handles questions of doctrine, um, and it also handles um, um, uh, sexual abuse allegations against clerics. Mm -hmm. um, now, in many ways, I'm very excited about uh, Fernandez's appointment. Um, it's been reported that he is the ghostwriter for um, Evangelii Gaudium and Amoris Laetitia and Laudato Si uh, encyclicals and documents that I think are, um, I mean, they're some of my favorite. I think that they um, set the tone for Francis's papacy and, and set the tone for um, the church further um, living out Vatican II. 60, 70 years now after the fact. Um, I love the theology. I love the centrality of the kerygma. I love how pastoral and practical these are. Like these documents are my favorite in the idea of him 
uh, being the one who's heading the office of doctrine in the church, mm -hmm. uh, it's exciting. Like for me, that's exciting that this is the direction the church is going to continue going in. However, um, when he was named, there was a lot of criticism in the, you know, even the day of that he was named about, um, a book he wrote in the nineties, which is really like a 10 page booklet or something, <laughs> um, about, uh, about kissing. And it's, a, it, there was an English translation published online. I read through it quickly and parts were good. Parts were cringy. Um, and it was really difficult in the year 2023 after over two decades of clerical abuse scandals and cover up not to read the cringy parts as creepy and inappropriate. Hmm. Um, I just got to ask, I haven't read them. Maybe a number of our listeners haven't either. I'm just curious, is there any overlap between something like, um, is it St. Bernard of Clairvaux who wrote a variety of very uh, uh, intimate and beautiful um, reflections on the Song of Songs, the kiss of the mouth of Christ and so on. But yeah, I, like I said, I don't know anything about what was actually crafted. Is there an argument that could be made that this is trying to do that in a modern context? Yeah, yeah, he literally says it is. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the yeah. exact turn. Now, now, the thing is, though, he's writing this at the time as a parish priest and writing it specifically to teenagers and for like mm -hmm. four teenagers. And again, after twenty plus years of scandals of clerics abusing minors, it just it it does not hit right. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, he made a statement. Um, a couple of days after uh, after all of this kind of happened. Um, and he rightly pointed out, I think, that a lot of people were using this book as a way to criticize him as to, like, de-legitimize his theology um, and essentially Pope Francis's um, theology and teaching. And I think that that's true. Like, I saw a lot of people who I know very much disagree with the teaching in Amoris Laetitia who are sharing, like, criticism of this kissing book to like delegitimize the whole project. Okay. He's right there, except he didn't write the, this comment in 1995. He wrote it in 2023 and he, he didn't acknowledge that some people could legitimately find his book like genuinely creepy and inappropriate. Um, and he kind of did the opposite. He kind of did a thing where he lumped anyone who had, who would have concerns about his book into, well, they're somehow opposed to Pope Francis. And I think some are, absolutely. But um, but by not leaving room for people to legitimately be disturbed by this writing, um, I think he presented himself as being either ignorant or apathetic to how deep the mistrust towards the church and towards clerics is um, because of the past 20 years of scandals. And then, um, you know, in the past couple of weeks, it's also come to light. I mean, he, I think with the Associated Press gave, um, made a statement apologizing for um, a case uh, where a priest in his diocese, when he was archbishop in 2019, uh, was accused of sexual abuse. Um, and he apologized for the way he handled that, which like an apology is great, but also that was 2019. Like that was almost 20 years after Spotlight in Boston. That was a year after McCarrick why would an archbishop still be mishandling accusations against priests? Um, and then why is he now being put in charge of the office that handles um, sexual abuse allegations against priests for the entire church? Um, there's a, 
like I walk away from all of this as excited as I am about his theology and his teaching with a real sense of, does the church actually care about those who've been harmed by priests? Um, so again, I just threw a lot at you, Colleen. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, there's a ton there, I guess. Okay, I'll start with the kissing book. I think we left out a key part of it, which is yeah. that, you know, one of the main criticisms was about this poem that is attributed to a Victor M. Fernandez. We don't know for sure if it's his or not, but um, that I guess in this translation that was on the website Medium uh, that you could scroll through, it. Uh, there used, was a mistranslation. Yeah, that used the word bitch instead of which i don't know if i'm allowed to say that on a family podcast <laughs> but uh i trust that you'll believe it if mm -hmm. if it's not okay but yeah and that he said in his facebook statement was a mistranslation so like a lot of people just glommed onto that i think your concerns about it coming off as creepy are legit i also want to like temper it a little bit by saying that i think that there is a a big cultural difference here like one it was the 90s we weren't in the era of abuse cases and he can't he can't unpublish this thing yeah. right um i mean we we're in the era of abuse cases but not not in them being super widely known about and then the second is just that like he's argentinian there's there's a real cultural division there between like you know americans are pretty buttoned up about sex kissing etc in a way that argentinians are are not i think that's fair to say um I think the abuse case is a much more serious question and, you know, is, is one that, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I did some digging into this for an article I recently wrote for America. And I think it's interesting that this is just one case that people are glomming onto. Like, you know, usually when you see cover up, there's a, a pattern. And so I do find that a little bit hopeful um, that, that it was only this one case. And digging into the allegations that bishop's accountability which is where the main criticism of how he handled this has come from this is a an activist group in the us yep. we should say yeah um so their key criticism here was that fernandez had publicly defended this alleged abuser priest father lorenzo um i looked into the things that they linked to in both their like summary and then their public statement when they said, you know, he publicly defended him, it was a hyperlink. And I went and looked at the news articles that they linked to, and it looked like he had said to me, it looked like he had said that he supported him privately, like in this letter that then got leaked to the press, and it wasn't clear to me who was leaking it. Um, I was reading this in translation, so I could be missing something. Yeah. But I, I was not totally convinced that it was a, a public defense of him. But either way, he did say he was on this guy's side um there are also a lot of alleged victims right a lot more people came forward as this thing was coming through so like that lends some credibility <laughs> to yeah. to the allegations um it's also true that the justice process was never completed because as soon as a judge put out a warrant for lorenzo's arrest he died by suicide hours later so yeah i I feel like there's a lot of murkiness around this case, so it makes it difficult for us to pass a judgment on it. I think we can just report the facts. Um, I think that actually, like, the thing that's concerns me more about his appointment on this is that 
he told the Pope when the Pope talked to him about appointing him as the head of the DDF, he said that he didn't feel trained or prepared. That's a quote, trained or prepared to head the dicastery that handles abuse cases for the Vatican. And Pope Francis responded in a way I found equally concerning, which is he told him not to worry so much about that. He said, you know, the the PCPM, the Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors, which is the body that's been incorporated into the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith now, it's complicated bureaucracy. I'll just leave it there. But he was like, they have um, a really competent staff. And so you don't need to worry about that as much and just focus on the theology part of your job because that's that's what I want you doing. Uh, which feels like brushing it off. Uh, my understanding from like sources I've talked to in the Vatican who know a little bit more about this say, well, part of that is that the Pope has some big reforms to the PCPM planned, uh, which is much needed because anybody who's following them lately knows that Father Hans Zollner, who is like one of the most respected experts on abuse and safeguarding in the church, uh, he was a co-founder of this body and he quit it. He withdrew from it and, and literally said it was because people were not taking responsibility and there wasn't enough transparency in this body. So like- And, and other it, people in, have quit too, right? Yeah, yeah. Marie Collins, who was a really prominent uh, Irish survivor of abuse, quit earlier on. Um, but to see Hans Ulner withdraw from it was was huge. Um, anyway, so, you know, I've heard that that they're going to undergo some reforms, and that's why the Pope was kind of de-emphasizing it. Obviously, they really need the reforms. The big question is going to be, like, will those reforms be enough to solve the huge problems that the DDF has in handling abuse cases, you know? They don't have enough staff. They're a really small group, actually. They have a huge backlog. They have guidelines that have been put in place recently with the uh, with Vos Assis Lux Mundi, You Are the Light of the World, basically like a group of reforms aimed at uh, yeah, making safeguarding a more integral part of like every diocese in the world. But that's every diocese in the world. How are you going to enforce that with such a small staff, right? These are the big questions. And the fact that Fernandez didn't feel prepared and that the Pope responded by saying, oh, don't worry about it. It puts a lot of weight for me on those reforms that are supposedly to come that we've heard nothing about. And, you know, un yeah. unclear whether they'll be enough. On one hand, maybe I feel a little bit better that Fernandez isn't going to be taking a leading role in overseeing abuse allegations. Um, that those aren't being prioritized that's comes off really badly yeah yeah i mean yeah. the um the abuse scandal that and 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 the revelations in the church that have come out that are still coming out that weighs so heavily on me as a catholic oh yeah um, absolutely and it's 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 so hard for me to conceive of anybody but but especially the pope that not weighing on him um yeah like that is that is a really difficult thing to swallow um when i see so much um oh shoot now i'm blanking oh it was xavier university late last year did um research on uh, moral injury 
um, which is usually um, a psychological disorder um, that you see from uh, uh, like war veterans. And it's sort of related to PTSD, but also distinct. And it's participating in or, or witnessing an act that so violates your moral understanding of the world that in, in using untechnical language kind of breaks your conscience a little bit. Like mm -hmm. it makes, makes it difficult to make moral decisions and it makes it really difficult to trust moral authorities. And so this research the Xavier University did focused primarily on survivors of clerical sexual abuse to talk about their experience of moral injury from that. But it also talked a little bit about not direct survivors of clerical sexual abuse, but like the next ring out people who knew mm -hmm. people and how mm -hmm. they're experiencing moral injury. Um, well, you go one or two rings out from someone who's been abused by a priest, and that's pretty much every Catholic in the United States. Mm -hmm. And like the ripple effects of clerical sexual abuse and the intentional cover-up of that, that in some cases is still being going on. It's still, I mean, the next grand jury report from some next state, right? Like whatever, whenever that comes up, the ripple effects of that are profoundly damaging in the church that that isn't a central priority of the Vatican, of the Pope. Like, it boggles my mind. Like, that's really difficult to swallow. I don't, I don't know that that characterization is totally true, right? Like, it's a priority of the Vatican. He's de-emphasizing it here. And, you know, that, that's weird to us, you know, like right, rightfully so. I think we're we're right to to glom onto that. Um, but we can't say that it's not a priority of the Vatican, right? Like, they they have been kind of pulling out all the stops on this. It's just that it's always going to seem like it's not enough, you know. And and yeah, I don't know. I I struggled with this a lot, especially in 2018 when we had like the summer of shame, as some people called it. You had the McCarrick revelations come out, then you had the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, and then you had the Vigano thing where he released a letter and was like calling on the Pope to resign. And that was a really difficult time for me as a Catholic, to put it um, mildly. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess the place that I came to with it was like that and obviously like came to in, in that this is an ongoing wrestling. <laughs> this, I think that's part of being a Catholic in 2023 is that you're just gonna have to keep grappling with this. And I think it's almost part of our vocation. Yeah, but, I, I heard someone say in a different, uh, a different Catholic podcast, if you work for the church and you don't have an existential crisis every three months, then I don't trust oh, yeah. you. Yep, for sure, for sure. It's a sign that your conscience is working. Um, I guess what I was going to say, though, is, is, you know, the thing that gives me some consolation here is that we're never going to regain credibility as an institution. We're never going to be able to heal from this, move forward from this until all of the truth has come out, has come into the light. And that is a painful process. And it's going to take maybe 50 grand jury reports from every state in the United States and God forbid, you know, what comes out of the many, many countries that are far behind the U.S. in in handling abuse. So, yeah, like that's that's part of it is like I see this as kind of a, 
a purification process that is like necessary to happen. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of lost track of where I was yeah. going after that, I, but yeah, I guess I think something um, that I'm seeing mm -hmm. uh, and I see this at a local level uh, in my experiences in the church. Um, and and it's and this seems to be what I'm seeing from the stories of Father Rubnek and uh, and Archbishop Fernandez is um, and it was a couple of years ago on uh, Glory Purvis's podcast she had a guest on and I tried to look it up and I forget who the guest was um, but the guest used a phrase that was drawing on the church's tradition of of having a preferential option for the poor and the marginalized which is a doctrine of the church said that the church in the U.S. has a preferential option for the institution. And I like clung on to that. I'm like, that explains so much in my own experiences of the church where, yeah, when, when evangelization, like a Venn diagram, also lines up with uh, prioritizing the institution, we're like all about evangelization. But then when uh, they diverge, eh, not as much. Same with like, caring for survivors of clerical abuse when it lines up. Uh, yeah, we, we care for survivors. But then when it doesn't, when it threatens the institution, then they either get dropped like a hot potato or even like um, antagonistic. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe I have a deeply cynical view of the church, but... Uh, I it would be well-earned <laughs> at this point, right? <laughs> I, I see that all the time at all, all these different levels and, and not just with... And not just with um, abuse and cover up of abuse, but in lots of different areas. And at the point you made earlier about like, does this seem like it's a priority for the Vatican or priority for the Pope? Like talking mm -hmm. about, talking about Rupnet's art, artwork. Um, I think that the right response from leadership in the church at all levels from the local bishop, to, well, from your local pastor, bishop to the Pope, ought to be a preferential option for those who've been harmed by the church. Mm -hmm. And I think really anything less than that is an inadequate response. And that's what I want to see. So mm -hmm. maybe if you're grading on a curve, Francis is better than Benedict or better than John Paul II and how he's handling abuse. Maybe if you're grading on a curve, but if but if the bar is that you have that you're giving preferential thought and concern to those who've been harmed by the church, um, I I don't see them meeting that bar at all. I, yeah, no, I mean I think you can say it's a priority, but is still insufficiently prioritized. Yeah, both of those things are true. I also think that like not to excuse anything, but just like helpful context here, Pope Francis himself identifies 2018 when he was confronted by the survivors, sorry, by journalists who were speaking on behalf of survivors in Chile about uh, this bishop who covered up abuse by this notorious abuser priest. Francis dismissed what they were saying. He said, it's all calumny, it's all wrong. Turns out, it was not all calumny. It was it was right. This guy had covered up. Um, and the Pope had this kind of conversion on this where he got so much pushback for having immediately shut down what these people were saying that he sent 
Archbishop Shakluna, who is like a point person on investigating abuse cases, uh, to investigate. He came back with this massive, I think, a thousand page report on the Chilean church and the abuse crisis there. Uh, Pope Francis met with the three survivors of Karadima, the abuser priest, and he apologized to them. And then he brought all the Chilean bishops to the Vatican for their usual already scheduled ad limina meeting and basically told them all to resign. And yeah. so they resigned en masse. Um, like, he, but he points to that as his conversion moment. That was five years ago. That's not that long, you know? He's been Pope for 10 years. So, you know, we saw him kind of jump into action after that with um, the big abuse summit, which I still think was a really good thing. I know it got kind of dismissed by everybody who watched it, who said, you know, oh, nothing came out of this. But um, that was the heads of all the national bishops conferences when they met, correct? Yes. Yeah. He had all of the all of the presidents of all the bishops conferences around the world, plus I think other bishops and heads of religious orders and stuff um, come to the Vatican and he sat them down. I was there. He sat them down and forced them to listen to survivors, one from each continent, so that nobody could go home and say, this isn't a problem where I am. And then he immediately followed that up with Vos Estes and with some other guidelines uh, for putting in place in every diocese, like I mentioned before, safeguarding structures, reporting structures, investigating structures. Um, and yeah, we can criticize all day how, how those have come about. But I guess my point is like, He's had his foot on the gas pedal for like five years, but it's still a slow start. It's still a lot of catch up. And like, he's just, I I think that the US is just, has been outpacing other parts of the church, especially the Vatican, which has to take together all those parts of the church around the world. It's, it's gonna be pretty much impossible for them to catch up with where the US is having made so many reforms. Uh, as, as someone who's only known the U.S. church, mm -hmm. it is a frightening thought to me that the U.S. church is ahead of everybody else. I know. I know. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is, a, this is a big perspective shift that I had when I started covering the Vatican is like, oh my God, but we're such a mess, but we're, the, we're the good ones on this relatively. So, okay. So one question that comes to mind is. Yeah. Francis is old. He has. He's been around the block a lot. Very experienced. I am sure that 2018 was not the first time he's talked to survivors of clerical sexual abuse. Yeah. Why did it take so long? And not just like him personally, but also like. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think about, uh, and when I put together this outline, I started listing these people. So these people are just the people who I knew off the top of my head that I didn't have to look up, right? Okay. So in the past 70 years, we have seen people in the church who are like, like grade A gross predators rise mm -hmm. to some of the highest ranks in the, in the church. So we mm -hmm. have like um, Father Marie um, Dominique Philippe, who's the founder of the Brothers of St. John. You have mm -hmm. his brother, Thomas, uh, Father, Thomas, uh, Father Thomas Philippe, who's the mentor mm -hmm. of Jean Vignet. You have Jean mm -hmm. Vignet himself, the founder of Larche. Mm -hmm. Father Massayel, the founder of, of the Legionnaires. Uh, mm -hmm. and Colonel McCarrick. So yes. people who, some of the highest positions in the church. Um, John Paul II promoted McCarrick. He's known to be friends with Father Masayo. Um, mm -hmm. 
in an article a couple weeks ago from Catholic News Agency that was talking about uh, uh, the brothers, um, yeah, Father Philippe, um, uh, Father Thomas Philippe and Father Marie Dominique Philippe, that the Vatican actually sanctioned them for mm -hmm. sexual misconduct things in the yep. 1950s. And then it said John Paul II just didn't know about those sanctions, yeah. which is which boggles my mind. Like that's very difficult to actually believe that it's true that he that John Paul II didn't actually know. But even if he didn't know, what does that also say that the Pope wouldn't know about sanctions? Like, uh, <laughs> uh, this sounds conspiratorial. And just a couple of weeks ago, we released an episode about not to have conspiratorial thinking, but. It certainly feels like there's that there's a culture of clerical self-protection that's been curated, perhaps by predators themselves, for decades, if not a century, at these highest levels of the church, like, which maybe explains why it's taking so long for the church to catch up. But like, how do you come back from that as an institution? No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that you're right about that culture of protection and clerical self-protection, you said. Um, yeah, we know this. If you read through all 800 pages of the McCarrick Report, it's it's all there, right? And we know that there's this culture also around, like, sexuality in the church, which says, you know, we kind of act like this doesn't exist, uh, especially among priests and, you know, if you know somebody else's sexual secrets, then that's something that you can hold against them and they can hold against you. And it, like, it's this really disgusting culture that's then like propped up by clericalism, as Pope Francis has talked about so much, where, you know, there's this belief on the part of the laity that priests can do no wrong or whatever, which then we've seen in many cases has given them even more access to victims. Yeah. I think that you're right in diagnosing that as as the problem. Um, and then the big question becomes, you know, how do you turn around from it? There's that expression that people use about the Vatican that the bark of Peter does not turn on a dime, right? Like this is your undoing more than a thousand years of just cultural rot. Can I say that? Like, and bureaucracy, that's all just a huge mess um yeah it it takes a lot and it's gonna be a long and painful process to try to move from that like i think the amazing thing if you take a historical view is that we're actually making some of the changes we're actually doing some of the turning but this is gonna probably go on for like our whole lives right this is not gonna be over soon and we just have to keep pushing for it you know it's either that or burn the institution down which like i'm sympathetic to people who say it i get where they're coming from you know it's it is not what i have discerned as the best thing to do but yeah so, yeah so so maybe shifting the question then from how does the institution come back from this to mm -hmm. what do i as a catholic who loves pope francis who like i mean I have said this to people and it's absolutely true. I don't know if I would still be Catholic if it wasn't for the teachings of Pope Francis. Like it's they, the same thing. Yeah. they came at just the right time in my life. And he presented to me an image of God and 
image of, yeah, an image of God and of the gospel that I hadn't heard before. Um, I love Francis and I love mm -hmm. his teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I, I, I can't deny that that's true. And at the same time, I'm like, Francis, do you not see the people who are hurting because of abuse and because of the church not prioritizing those who've been harmed by abuse? Like, do you not see? Do you not care? Are there things you think are bigger priorities? Like what? Um, it's, <laughs> uh, I'm, I've been thinking about like the Eucharistic revival going on in the US. It takes a mm -hmm. lot less faith for me to believe that God turns bread into the body of Christ than it does for me to, to on some days, to believe that this whole institution isn't rotten to the core. Uh, and I'm still here, and I still believe that it's true. And I still go to Mass. I still receive the thing that looks like bread that I believe is the body of Christ. Um, but, like, what do we do with that? Uh, if these things that are so important, our leadership does not see as, doesn't seem to see as important or doesn't prioritize enough. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. As Catholics going to Mass, what do we do with that? Answer all my questions, Colleen. Just <laughs> I'm a. I mentioned this too in our in our Twitter DMs before this, but I'm working on a book on this right now that I'm hoping will be officially announced soon. But you know, for now, that's that's what I can say about it. But it's it's about wrestling with staying Catholic while kind of having a front row view of the ugliest things in the church. Um, as a as a person who reports on the Vatican week in week out. Um, I kind of want to tell you a, a story. It's not going to yeah. answer your questions, but I love stories. Like, yeah. Um, I remember in summer 2018 when all of this stuff was going on, the summer of scandal, the summer of shame. Uh, I was like having a really tough time getting myself to church, like churches were usually places that I stopped into pretty regularly. I had a weird habit of always moving in next door to one. Um, and so, you know, there are always places that I would pop in and just like wrestle with the things I needed to wrestle with. And uh, in that summer, they became places that just made me really angry. And so stopped going to them. I still did like drag myself to mass, but I would just sit there just like shaking with rage, you know? And like the one thing that I remember speaking to me was uh, the reading, I think it must've been in August, like right around all the McCarrick stuff and, and the Vigano stuff. But it said, the, the first reading was, woe to you shepherds who, you know, scatter my sheep. And then the responsorial Psalm right after that was the Lord is my shepherd. And it was just like, ah, crap, like you're right. I'm here. I'm here because of God, not because of this this messed up institution. And you know, I don't know. You look back to St. Peter and stuff, and you're like, God, these guys are a mess. Like, why? Why? It's yeah. It's clear that the institution continues to exist despite itself. You know. Um, so I guess that's the one thing is is just yeah that I've try to hold on to like 
God and my belief in God and and also my belief that this institution is it's made up of sinners and always has been. Uh, and then the other thing is, so like in February 2019, I ended up on this trip. It like it just happened. It was by accident. I scheduled back to back a silent retreat in Montreal with my Jesuit friend who's a great spiritual director. Uh, and then I was flying straight from that to uh, Rome to cover the abuse summit, which everyone believed nothing was going to come from. And I believe nothing was going to come from. Uh, and then straight from there to work on America's pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And I was like, after this two weeks or whatever, I'm coming out of this either with some kind of new resolve that I cannot foresee, or I'm coming out of this an atheist. Like there's gonna be no between. This is this is the crucible right now. Um, and I spent the whole silent retreat just like yelling at God, which was such an important lesson for me to like, I mean, literally like red faced crying, just like sitting in this little chapel in Montreal. And it was so important for me to learn that that's like an, an equally legitimate way of talking to God. Um, and then, yeah, then I went off to Rome and it was like, I was just like in the belly of the beast, like having to deal with all these issues and report on them constantly. I barely had time to think. And then I got to the Holy Land and was working, working, working still. I had hoped I could finally like, you know, process some of this, but no. And I finally got my like moment of silence when we were in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and we're like in line for like two hours and it's a zoo. People are like shoving past you and whatever. But uh, as we were about to go in to the little like there's like a church inside the church and the church inside the church is built over the tomb of Jesus. There's like a rock that covers it and you can go in and like put your hands on it for a couple seconds. Like there's literally a guy with a stopwatch like every three seconds being like, okay, move along. <laughs> but um, yeah, I so I'm like in line and I'm finally like letting myself think about all this. And I remembered a, a little quote from Madeleine Delbrell, who I'm a big fan of. She's a French lay woman, mystic, poet, social worker. I, she's sometimes called the French Dorothy Day. Um, she says, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of like, you'll never understand the gospel if you don't approach it as a person who has lost all hope in human institutions. And if you, she says, you can only understand it if, if you approach it, it's such a good quote. I don't really want to get it right. But yeah, who has lost all hope in human institutions and who holds on to it as a person who recognizes that this is their only hope. And then I like went in Holy crap. and put my hands on the like stone over Jesus's tomb. And I just like get this overwhelming sense of like this, like this is your only hope, you know, this promise of like Jesus of the resurrection. And whenever people ask me, like, how, how the hell I'm still here, that's it. You know, it's, it's the gospel. It's the promise of Jesus. It's nothing about these dudes who keep messing things up so bad. I, I don't know. It's, it's not a good answer of, like, what do I do about this? I think the answer to that is, like, prayerful discernment of, like, 
you know, what, what you think God's calling you to do. And honestly, like going and yelling at God and then listening to what God has to say back. But yeah, that's, that's what it's about for me. Thank you for Sorry. that story. That was really deep. <laughs> that was really good. I don't Thank usually you. get that vulnerable, but yeah. Thank you for that story. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for also being really vulnerable in this conversation. I had no idea it was going to be this like emotional, but yeah, these are raw, raw, raw topics. And I appreciate you not shying away from that. I've moved from having an existential crisis about the church every three months to just being in perpetual existential crisis about the church. So the, these <laughs> David are... Gibson had a quote at the end of his um, book on Pope Benedict, which he always cringes when I bring it up. He's like, that's not my best work. But uh, he's he says that it's it's an essential part of like the vocation of being a Catholic in the 21st century to just constantly be grappling with membership in the institution. And I think he's totally right about that. Like, if this means that you're thinking critically. Yeah. In several recent conversations I've had, um, I've, I've seen the value of uh, being able to hold two seemingly contradicting things is true. Yeah. Um, you can hold both to profound goodness in the ways I've experienced God in the church and in the sacraments and in her teaching and also all this crap. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to deny one. I can hang on to both of them. Yeah. And, and, but that creates a tremendous amount of tension to live and exist in. And the temptation, at least for me, is always to try and relieve the tension. Mm -hmm. to, to try and either be like, well, maybe I haven't really experienced God here. Maybe the faith isn't really that important to me. Or to be like, well, maybe these guys really aren't as bad as I think they are. Yeah. Yeah, I totally feel that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was reading, um, actually, Pope Francis, um, uh, the book, uh, I think it's uh, the, the Mind of Pope Francis. Um, oh, Massimo, Massimo Borghese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is actually a really difficult book for me to read. Uh, but I'm slowly going through it. And yeah. He talks about one of Francis's early, early like theological ideas of like holding, you know, the, the thesis and the antithesis, holding these two things in tension mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the expectation that the Holy Spirit's going to do something creative in the tension. Yes. Yeah. And God, that's all I'm hanging on to is I... the hope that the Holy Spirit's going to do something creative in me. Yep. yep. And also like, Maybe in the church, man, that would be nice too, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That idea of, of holding things in tension is, I think it's been really important to me for a long time and, and like my own theological thought, not that I like, I'm super well-trained in theology. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but yeah, like one of the first things I read in this little reading group in college that was very formative to me was de Lubac's Paradoxes of Faith. And it basically lays out that same thing, like that, that from holding these two things in a creative tension, I guess, that hold each other up like, like cards. I'm, I'm making two cards leaning against each other with my hands. <laughs> the listeners can't see that. But um, yeah, by holding these things in tension, they actually paradoxically support each other and there's some kind of creative something that the holy spirit can do i'm 
I'm just re-saying what you've just said, but yeah, I, I agree that that's an important thing and something that I really have to hold on to, <laughs> even if it's like impossible to imagine it, imagine what the Holy Spirit could come up with. Um, but it's the same thing that we're talking about in the synodal conversations right now, right? Is, you know, not doing away with the tensions, but having those disagreements, putting them out in the open and, and trusting that the Spirit can do something with them, which is a big leap of faith. <laughs> yeah. I, I think something too is as the church slowly and as me personally, like it disassembles the deep clericalism in the church is confronting and challenging and being okay with not being okay with mm -hmm. clerical leaders. Um, even your bishop and even the Pope, but doing it in a way that, I mean, for me, I've rested on, you know what? The Holy Spirit's made promises about the Pope's magisterial teaching that he's not going to lead us into error and that we really need to listen to it. Great. It says really nothing about his governing decisions. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, same with, same with my own Bishop, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have to agree and maybe often it's better that I don't, uh, but that, but there still has to be this respect around the magisterial teaching. Um, because, because that's, because the, our trust in the magisterial teaching isn't in trust in your Bishop or Francis or the college of bishops. It's trust in the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. And if I lose trust in the Holy Spirit, then why am I why am I here? Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I've become more comfortable with that, and I'm still becoming more comfortable with that type of that type of criticism uh, and nuance and distinctions. But I feel like the church is becoming more comfortable with that as a whole as well. Yeah. Yeah, though, I think it's. Go ahead. Though I also see it going too far too far <laughs> yeah i know i was i was thinking that too as you were saying it i was like you know you can then take this down to like debates about how magisterial a teaching is and you know like really it can quickly turn into i don't like this so i'm gonna ignore it whatever and every catholic does that to an extent right like um but yeah i i agree completely with what you're saying about like <clears throat> Yeah, trusting trusting the Holy Spirit, even if it's not totally visible in the the governance decisions or whatever. Like I say this with Jerry, my podcast co-host, sometimes. Um, you know, the reason that I like covering Catholic news for a Catholic media outlet is, you know, you can limit, you can you can describe all of our interchurch problems and debates in terms of like politics, left versus right, or conservative versus traditional, or I'm sorry, liberal versus traditional. Which is fun to say. do sometimes. Oh, it's it's certainly an easy shorthand, right? But but at the end of the day, we're also able to talk about like, you know, the election of a pope, for example. Like it's this kind of magical moment, if I can say that. Like that sounds cheesy, but it's this moment where you can never totally explain it with, oh, the liberals won, the conservatives won. Like, and we are allowed in our coverage to say like, yeah, we believe that 
that the Holy Spirit helped choose this person or, or worked through the cardinal electors to choose this person. And yeah, in the same way, like the Holy Spirit has a role in, in the various appointments, even if it looks a lot like, you know, Pope Francis is just picking his allies. John Paul was just picking his allies. Um, it looks yeah. political. Yeah, there's an element of that, I'm sure, but the Holy Spirit is also at work. And yeah, again, like it's it's a leap of faith. You just have to believe it, you know, yeah. even if it's hard to believe. Yeah. Um, We've gone everywhere in this conversation. I was going to say, this was a really fantastic conversation. <laughs> um, we have to move towards wrapping up. Um, and we like to end, you know, by asking guests what, you know, if listeners resonated with what we're talking about, what's something practical they can do with it? Um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't really have many answers to that. So I'm going to like put that responsibility on you other than, <laughs> other than losing all hope in all human institutions. Do it, man. <laughs> um, what do you recommend for our listeners well, as like practical things? I mean, I don't know. There's the next step after that, which is to, to, hold on to the gospel like it's your only hope, which some days is the best I can do. Um, I think what I was saying earlier about, you know, going to God and just yelling at God and, and then listening and trying to discern what God is calling you to do. Like the, the what do I do question is going to be different for everybody. You know, for me, it's a lot of like, okay, this is a process where the truth really needs to come out. So it's my job to keep digging for the truth. For some other people, it's going to look different. It's going to be, you know, maybe getting into a ministry work where you're accompanying survivors. Maybe it's, you know, just like going to a protest, standing outside the cathedral with a sign. Like, you know, I, I really think that like, I'm a big believer that any of your action that's that's about something important like this has to be rooted in prayer um and so yeah like you know sounds like a, a little bit of a cop-out answer but i think my answer is just to keep doing that wrestling that that i've said a couple times now is part of the vocation of a catholic in 2023 like keep doing that prayerful wrestling i one of the most important gospel stories to me and actually something that stuck out to me on that that silent retreat i did was the story of um, Jacob wrestling with God, yeah. and it and they say in the Bible that it it lasted all night. Like this was not like an easy fight. They had to keep going at it, and that is what my spiritual life feels like a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, I just think that that not giving up that fight, just continuing to go and like demand from God, like what should i do also change this if you can i that's that's the best advice i have fighting with god that's your advice <laughs> fighting fighting with god fighting with the problems in the church and asking god like okay because in the end god wins the fight you're not going to be god right yeah. but once you've put in i feel like there's value in putting in the wrestling effort you know and once you've finally, <laughs> finally been wrestled out, then be like, okay, God, what do I do? And right, what happens in that story? God gives Jacob a new name and, you know, makes him this heir to his, his mission. And yeah, I, that's the next part of the story for us too, is my hope. I'm waiting for that part. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's, I think that it's maybe not so linear. It's a lot of like wrestle, convert, wrestle, convert, wrestle, convert. And like, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. let you know if I ever get there. <laughs> I think that will be in the afterlife if ever. Yeah. Um, Dominic, you've been, we've been talking, you've been listening and any thoughts you want to throw in at well, the end here? Thanks for always, um, including me, Paul. It's always very kind of you. Um, I do love that story. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it's fine. I have my go on other shows, but, um, what I do, one thing I do love about that story is that, yes, I think we're all called to wrestle with God. I think that is the, that is the human thing. Um, but one of the other things also is that we don't walk away from a fight like that unscathed. We may come mm -hmm. bearing blessings, but we also come away broken. We have to be broken. And Jacob endures his damaged hip and he limps for the rest of his days, you know, so mm. he earns all these things, but we go through these, Not you know, we are profoundly changed. And I think it's through that wound that God enters into us. Um, and I'm still halfway on my journey or whatever, but I'm looking back at some of the profound dislocations I've had in my life and realizing it was only because of those that I am where I am now. Praise God, or I hope to God I'm going somewhere better. Uh, mm -hmm. If not, he'll come and do a little bone resetting again, which I never want to happen in the moment, but is always, you know, good yeah. afterwards. Um, I was just thinking and listening to uh, this conversation, how uh, I, th I think I come from a different place that, that, that you two do because I grew up in, in an atmosphere of such profound and constant distrust of anything having to do with the hierarchy, especially the, the popes. Mm. So I'm, I'm like a convert coming from sort of uh, fringe radicalism or traditionalism, coming then into communion and trying to discover what that then means and feeling my way through this. And the Holy Father is really the only sort of beacon that has been an immovable thing. And as difficult as it is, learning from for me to learn what has earned my trust and and what where am i do i owe my trust and then how does that ladder down you know through the hierarchies and i still don't totally know but the thing that has been sort of immovable has been the um the person of christ that's the like you said it's the only reason that you stay trying to find him and see him and then seeing how the holy father is in his own way uh making his own contributions to you know emulate that embody that to be that yeah he's not perfect but um for me he's a dang sight better than anybody that i was worshiping um in the yeah. past so colleen where can folk find you online if they want to check you out do you have a, your own oh. personal website apart from uh, your work at america media i do but it mostly just redirects there so uh <laughs> that's where i would send people is you can read my article at at articles uh, at americamagazine.org. That's also where you can listen to my podcast. You can also probably find my podcast on whatever app you're using to listen to the Pope Jan Francis Generation right now. Um, and then if you're into social media, God bless us all. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Colleen Dully. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E. -L -L -E. Also, I just want to give a little plug to the church reform blog that uh, got mentioned in my bio. It's called Go Rebuild My House at Sacred Heart University. If you just Google it, it's easy to find. But it's, I think, an underappreciated resource. There's a lot of good writers on there having some good conversations about the reform of the church. 
Yes. And then if in the next couple of weeks between this conversation and the episode coming out, we get news about your upcoming book, we will share that <laughs> as well. And if, and if that hope. comes out, <laughs> if that comes out after we publish this, um, yeah, yeah. I will it will definitely... be all over the aforementioned social media accounts. Yes. I'm going to get really go. annoying yeah. <laughs> about promoting my book. <laughs> So there you go, friends. Um, if you enjoy this conversation, smash that like button. It's going to help the algorithm push this out so more people can hear about Colleen and, well, really this conversation just like I did. Paul, if our friends have a question uh, or some feedback for this podcast for Pope Francis Generation, where can they go? Yeah, so you can go to popefrancisgeneration.com. That's where you can message me, contact me. Um, and if you like the podcast and want to go deeper with the things that we discuss, check out Father's Heart Academy. Um, there we're building a community of people who are looking for more compelling answers to their questions or being okay with not getting answers to their questions and just being okay with sitting in the question. Um, offer, offer workshops and resources um, yeah, to help us hear a, a more beautiful and compelling gospel. Um, and that's at fathersheartacademy.com. And the show is also brought to you by Smart Catholics. It's the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations like this one, unafraid of doubts and questions. Plus, we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. So join us at smartcatholics.com. Until next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you.